Um, so <clears throat> I, uh, I want to say a thank you to all of you for uh, your uh, profound and continuous role in uh, this very extraordinary time in our lives as uh, my as my wife um, endures and um, <clears throat> I um, thank you I'm sorry Just, um, thanks for being here uh, you at home wonder is the room full and it's very uh, nearly full this morning and it's a really sweet full it's a it's a full that when you can be here I want you to be here I really do and we do right we do Make some noise so they know that for sure. It's really true. So um, it's really, um, we're going to talk about this at the end of my message this morning where um, we did uh, a little look back, a year and a half um, since COVID uh, interrupted our lives. And um, it was a year ago that we began uh, live stream, uh, or rather uh, people back in the building. Uh, we never did close the buildings and uh, uh, never closed Grace Point. We closed the buildings, but not the church. And uh, more on that later. But um, I want to take you back to a childhood of mine uh, that is not uh, hard for me to illustrate. My difficulty is finding which story to tell you. Um, You've heard the expression, or maybe even used the expression, if so, raise your hand, you can't fix stupid. Okay, I, I took a moment when, um, before I asked that question to make sure none of my teachers or former bosses or uh, any members of law enforcement that have pulled me over before are in this building. Uh, because uh, you're tempted right now, if that were the case, to stand up and go, Amen, I remember, you know. Um, but it is true. Um, I'm not sure. I tried hard to track it down and figure out who it was that came up with it. It wasn't Foxworthy. It, it goes way back further than that. So this saying's been around a long time. Some of you are already uh, Googling that, trying to figure it out. But give it up. You won't. Um, and if you do find my name next to any... <laughs> no, no. Um, I, uh, <clears throat> I laugh because I have, a, honestly, a collection of personal memories where I could uh, right now go uh, far and wide and tell you moments where such a label was used by a coach of mine or um, I'm avoiding eye contact with my dad right now. <laughs> but my, uh, my parents at least thought it, if not expressed it. I don't, they were too nice to express it. Uh, certainly teachers, I mentioned uh, principals. I was a troubled kid and I mentioned law enforcement. I'd never been behind bars except to visit people there um, as a pastor, but I was close as a kid uh, a number of times. Uh, I didn't understand why a school zone couldn't be, uh, you know, 60 miles an hour. You'd get through it quicker, is my logic, and the, the police officer that handed me a ticket just thought to himself, his look said, you, you can't fix stupid. I was... I was 16, and I had my license for two days. I mean, come on. I, you know, I, anyway, my favorite C, uh, CFS moment, <laughs> can't fix stupid, uh, was when I was uh, working in a, in a service station. In those days, we had two stalls at this gas station, and we even had a third was a car wash. But down in Salem, um, I... Uh, I was asked by my boss nervously to raise a car up on a hoist. He was going next door for breakfast, and he was the head mechanic, and we had another mechanic. These were very talented mechanics. I, I just want you, he said, to raise this car on the hoist. That's it. I'll be back after a quick bite, and then I can look into the transmission issues or whatever was going on. So I said, hey, no problem. My brother and I quickly set the hoist. If you know what that is, it's the thing that raises your car up in the air so a mechanic can get underneath and easily access things. So we set the hoist, and uh, we began to raise the hoist. And um, it's just a lever, and you, you, it's a hydraulic thing, and it starts to whoosh. And it got about three feet off the ground, and I thought, wait a minute, I'm not sure if I set the emergency brake. 
so I opened the door. You know, I, we stopped raising it. I opened the door, and I could see that the brake, uh, yeah, it looks like it's set, you know. So I said, go ahead, Glenn, and he keeps raising it. And, uh, and it goes up further and further. I, I, I forgot to mention that right, it's a tight little garage uh, repair shop, and next to it is a tire rack welded into the wall all the way the length of this. And so um, the car continues to go up, but that door I mentioned that, that yeah, I just, I forgot to close it. <laughs> Right, so it's hanging out like this, and it gets up about five feet in the air, six feet in the air, and I start to hear this. Watch my hands. As it catches the tire rack, the door did, the car continues to go up. The door didn't uh, go up like the car went up. And in my horror, I realized what we had done, and I thought, oh, we are we got to fix this quick. So we lower it back down again, and before the car hit the floor, the door hit the floor. You getting that? You catching the image here? And I'm going, Glenn, we got to do something quick. And so we're grabbing this door. As now we're an auto repair shop, an um, um, auto body shop, and we're pulling the door up, trying to. Two guys... Uh, Anyway, just at that time, my boss came around the corner. And I, um, I won't even try to tell you what he said, because I'm sure it will be beeped out uh, for live stream. But let's say um, we were promptly dismissed from his employment in that moment. Um, it was really bad. So that was just one of, I could literally entertain you all day long at, just in the repair shop. Uh, Different things that didn't go quite so well. You can't fix stupid, right? I mean, some of you have wondered a long time, uh, why, why is duct tape so plentiful? <laughs> it's for people like me that, you know, <laughs> something happens and you just got to, you know, I, I had some problems with customers' radiators and there's a, in my mind, a, a fix. Just put some duct tape on it and anyway, I could go on, so... It's not about that exactly, except I thought of another version of it. And I want to introduce God's Word to us in a really serious matter to us this morning. Uh, if it's true that um, you can't fix stupid, and um, I encourage you to tell some of those stories in your life groups and other places where you'll meet and discuss today's message. But I, I found myself thinking about this, that um, I think it's probably the best summary, actually, that I've come up with to describe God's people for all ages, and in particular for the 325 years that spans the uh, season, if you will, the time of the judges in the Old Testament. It's not the expression, you can't fix stupid. It's the, uh, let's change it a little. You can't fix stubborn. You can't. Um, to see why I chose that saying, we need to journey back uh, 3,500 years this morning. Would you, would you join me and go back in time to the days? Start with your memory, but if you're turning places in your Bible, you can find your way to Numbers chapter 13, and we'll be there for part of our time. But let me say it this way. Um, the 3,500 years ago, of course, takes you to the year 1446 or 50. And it's uh, the year, um, the historical details of what was going on starting at that point is that God's people had been held prisoner, slaved uh, in slavery, for a very long time, 400 plus years, <clears throat> a really long time. And, um, and that prompted a, a sympathetic response by God. This is all told in Exodus chapter 2, where God hears the cry of his people at the end of that chapter, and he sets in motion a rescue plan. We use the word deliverance 
they both kind of equal the same. Uh, a plan that involved him tapping a human leader, somebody frail, somebody made of clay, just like me, just like you. His name was Moses. And he taps Moses and says, I've got an assignment for you. And again, the historical details are uh, uh, sort of fill the books of Exodus through Deuteronomy, four of the five first books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. So you can go there and look at details. But the Hebrew people had been slaves for a very long time. And Exodus opens by reporting that God... I, I, I sometimes read the Bible and I imagine a picture, a visual in my mind of what it means when it says at the end of Exodus 2 that God heard their cry and he was moved by what he heard and saw. Can I stop myself and just tell you that's true still today? Um, one of our worship team members, we have a kind of a green room moment. We just get together and say, okay, we're about to get this worship time started. And, and this person observed that there's a lot of pain, uh, not just in our world, but in our, in our people, in our congregation. Some of you, uh, pain in my life, in my family's life, in Debbie's life. There's hard stuff going on, and it's important from those early moments to remember the, the same God that heard and saw something that moved him is still moved today by what he hears and sees. If you're not sure about that, would you just take my word right now and trust me that you're almost guaranteed to find that to be true if you'll just spend a little time. In, and let's just go to the Gospels and follow Jesus around, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you're going to find yourself going, wow, he never gave a cold shoulder to someone suffering. Never. He just didn't do that. He walked away from people that were, you know, um, suit and tie. And my, my apologies, I, I look good in a suit and tie too. But uh, the deal is, he, he wasn't uh, impressed by, um, you know, slick religious professionals. He just cares about people that hurt. And he responded to him, and he does here in Exodus. So God sends Moses, this man, to, to Pharaoh. I should tell you this as a full disclosure. Moses is 80 years old. Okay, now I'm less than that. But the task that God had called Moses to do would be overwhelming to anybody living anywhere 80 years and old, old, older. He began the deliverance as an 80-year-old uh, senior adult, we would say today. That's saying something to you seniors, and I'll let you kind of make the application. God's not done with you. And he did great things through Moses. Why 80 years old? Well, because <laughs> he had a little scuffle back when he was 40. Moses came upon an Egyptian beating the stuffing out of a Jew who was one of the slaves, being really, really uh, mistreated, all, all slavery is, right? So he comes upon this, looks to the right, looks to the left, and jumps the guy and kills him. And then he buried him, I guess, in a shallow grave. And, and um, the next day he comes back and people reveal that they saw what had happened. He thought he, he did it under the radar, but he was caught and feared the wrath of Pharaoh and ran for his life. And for the next 40 years, he was a fugitive. Moses, he was a fugitive. And during that time, God was really doing some really great things in his life. Now, we need to stop and just catch our breath a second. Why? We just covered 500 years. 500 years, five centuries of struggle. Finally, God's people are, are free. He had sent Moses to Pharaoh, not once, not twice, but ten times, and said, let my people go. Finally, the tenth time, Pharaoh let him go. 
but only for the day or so, and then gave chase having changed his mind and a purpose to, to do him in. Um, they're free now. All that takes us to them being free. And they're poised to press on toward the promised land, the home that God had promised to give them. That's where we're at in my narrative right now. So how far did they have to travel to get home? Now, without you looking at maps, you could consult any map in any Bible, and you'll find a rough estimated location for Goshen, the land where they lived in Egypt against their will. It's kind of north. I'm just going to say it's a few hundred miles, couple hundred miles north of Cairo, present-day Cairo. It's, um, it's not known exactly, but we do know how far it would be on any map in any Bible if they took the direct route to their promised land, the home God said you get to live in, uh, it's, which is known as Canaan. It's known as Israel, the promised land, the holy land, lots of different labels, all the same location. That distance, 350 miles. Okay? Let me, let me, for you in Oregon, I'm not sure where you're watching from other places, but let me connect a couple of dots. Here in Oregon, if you went to, uh, to um, Astoria, way up at the peak on the Pacific Ocean and Columbia River where they come together, drew a straight line, actually just take Interstate 84 all the way to La Grande, you got 350 miles. Okay? How long should it have taken them? 11 days. 11 days to walk it. Okay? I'm not making that up. That's not just my calculation. Actually, the Bible reports in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2, it should have been an 11-day trip. But because of their rebellious choices, remember I started this message with the expression, you can't fix stupid and then stubborn? Well, because of that, the stubborn part. This 11-day trip actually turned into a little bit longer journey. Uh, that's right, 40 years of wandering. From 11 days, which you could pull off by early October if you started today, 40 years. Wow. Wow. The plan was to take days, folks, not decades. Don't forget, circle the word if you've not written it down yet. Stubborn. So what happened? Let's understand that. You're in Numbers 13, so let's find out. God directs Moses. Once they're out of Egypt, Goshen, and they start toward the land, God says, hey, select 12 spies, one from each tribe uh, of Israel, and send them into the land. This is all in Numbers chapter 13. Look at verses 1. The Lord says to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. There were 12 tribes. So 10 of the 12 spies return with a different message than two. So let's stick with the ten for a second. They come back trembling at what they saw in the land. Let me, let me show you what um, the Bible reports as the visual. They gave Moses this account in verse 27 of Numbers 13. Okay, you ready? They gave him this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and you're right. It flows with milk and honey. Here's the fruit, and they show them uh, these, these clusters of grapes that it took two men to carry one of them between them on a pole. I mean, these are big grapes. This, there's bounty in this land. You're right, Moses. But verse 28, the people who live there, however, are powerful, and their cities are fortified, and they're huge. 
We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. In other words, there's swarms of bad guys out there, and they're all over the place. And it's just located in a couple of places where we could circle them and maybe ambush them. But in the midst of this chorus of voices shaken by what they had seen, verse 30 says, Caleb silences the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. That's all he got out. The men had, who had gone up with him says, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. I mean, they just put it out there. Do you see this back and forth battle going here? And they, and they spread among the Israelites, these other ten, a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. And they even point back to a story in Genesis chapter 6 of the Nephilim. These are, these are uh, some believe that you can trace uh, Goliath, the one that David slew. You can trace him as one of them. So these are big, um, fearful people. The Nephilim, descendants of Anak, came from the Nephilim. We, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked as we looked at some of them. It's, can you think of a word? that We're just intimidated out of our minds. We're just little nothings. Let me ask you something. Have you ever felt like that? Or, or let me say, when's the last time you felt like that? You're in a job that's over your head. You're in a relationship that you just don't know where to go, how to get through it. You're facing a foe that's so big, you're, you just leaves you even thinking right now about it as small little, uh, not up for the fight. You just want to run. Well, that's certainly true of them. Their meltdown, um, it caused a seismic reaction. This was not a private meeting with Moses where those ten spoke politely. They stepped aside and Caleb and Joshua stepped up and said, well, we see it different. No, no, this is out in front of everybody causing something terrible to take place. There's a seismic reaction that I, I would call a, a massive uh, panic attack. You can see it in verse, verse 1. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. It was not quiet in the camp. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, their leaders, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is it that the Lord is bringing us into this land only to let us fall by the sword? In fact, our wives and our children, you know what? You know their future, they're going to be plunder. Can you hear the excitement in my voice? I'm trying to add some color to this. Wouldn't it have been better for us to just go back to Egypt, they said to one another. Let's do it. Let's just choose a new leader and let's split. That's people running. I felt like running at times. Um... And this situation isn't over. It just quickly swells in size. It's, it's becoming all-out mutiny. And Moses and Aaron, the two leaders, uh, one of the reasons they're, they're in the Hall of Fame in the Bible is because they're just so incredibly human and humble. They didn't, you know, order their execution. They fell. The Bible says they fell on their faces. And they, and they wept. While the two, other, the two other spies I keep mentioning, Caleb and Joshua, they did something even more dramatic. They just tore their clothes, which was an expression of great despair and grief. Um, then they spoke these words in shocking contrast. Look down in uh, chapter 14, verse 7. The land we passed through and explored, it is exceedingly good. And if the Lord is pleased with us, this is coming from Caleb, then, we, then he will lead us into that land, the land flowing with milk and honey. 
and will give it to us. You've got to stop and ask, what did he see that those ten didn't see? Or did they take a different route and only those two saw really cool things and not any intimidating things? No, they all went together. But they came home with a different story. Don't, do not rebel against the Lord, verse 9, and do not be afraid of the people of that land because we will what? We'll devour them. Caleb's saying, they don't stand a chance. We've got God. So what? They're big. Big guys fall. Ask any big guy that's put on a set of ice skates. <laughs> it hurts, doesn't it, James? It's awful. I don't, I've banned ice skates and a whole bunch of like rollerblades. No, 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 that hurts. So you get the idea here, right? Um, Caleb, you know what he's saying here? Guys, we've got this. If God is with us. Some of you right now are, are you know, they saw, they saw the same things. They understood something, Joshua and Caleb did, concerning God in a moment of overwhelming trouble. It's that truth that you know, some of you have memorized, if God is for us, look at you. I'm so proud of you people. Who can be against us? Romans 8, verse 31, of course. Wait a second. There's big suckers there. They could really hurt us. But if God is for us, we got this. They don't stand a chance, poor dude. You, get, you getting the difference here? Um, I want to bless you right now like you've blessed us. Um, some of you have the gift of encouragement and writing, and you've written Debbie and I and, um, in this time. And your words are like oxygen. I said it all the time. It's just like the best medicine we get. Um, one of you sent me a card. It sits on my desk still. And um, you're not able to be with us. You're, you're, um, you live nearby. But you sent me a card and um, it sits on my desk to remind me of this truth. God is for us. Who can be against us? Uh, it reads this. What ultimately matters is not the size of our mountains, but the strength of our mountain mover. I thought of that and I could expand on the card. What ultimately matters is not the size of our mountains or struggles or trials or threats or calamities or oppositions, but the strength of the God that is with us in them. Amen? Do you get that? Because I do sometimes and other times I don't. That's why it's sitting on my desk still and I just look at it again and remember that. Um, as it's described in Hebrews 13, verse 6, so we say with confidence, I want this to be my response to what I just said. What ultimately matters is not the size of the mountain that, that Debbie's facing and I face with her, but the, but the strength of the mountain mover. That's what ultimately matters. So that leads me to Hebrews 13, 6, which says, therefore I will have confidence. And we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, our helper. I will not be afraid. You hear me yelling? I'm yelling at me and my soul. It needs to hear that again and again. Don't get weary. Don't give up. Don't despair. God is here. What can mere mortals do? What can cancer possibly do? So did the people acquiesce? 
uh, this Caleb Joshua moment? Did they say, oh gosh, you are so right, Joshua and Caleb. <laughs> oh, how could we have forgotten? <laughs> well, you decide. Look at the very next verse, how it begins. Verse 10 of, Rome, of Numbers 14. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. I don't think it turned out that way. There's no contrition in their voice. And as a result, God, God prepares to destroy his people. You've got to see it, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, How long will, will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me? In spite of all the signs I've performed among them. You can read about that in Exodus. I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. And if you're Moses, forget Moses right now. If you're this leader, what would you have done to that offer? Oh, well, Lord, did you say a greater nation of, of people that don't have all this baggage? Um, what would you have said? to such an offer. Uh, amazingly, shockingly, Moses objected to God's words, saying essentially, there's got to be a different way, God. Look at verse 15. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, yeah, that's right. He might be God, but he's not big enough because look at verse 16. The Lord was not able to bring those people into the land, the promised land, uh, that he swore to them. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. It's a, it's a mess. Verse 19, so in accordance, Moses says, with your great love, forgive the sin of these people. Just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. So many of you, um, you know what happens next. Um, I want to read it. I, I've just got to, otherwise we're, we're going to miss some really good things. So look across the page to verse 28. God, after taking Moses' input, is that, I hope you understand how I'm saying that. It wasn't God didn't have the idea. It was God letting Moses show what he's made of. And so, so after taking that in, verse 28 says, So tell them, God speaking now, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. What's that? In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, watch this now, 20 years old or more. Adults is what he's saying who was counted in the census and who has grumbled, grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb and Joshua. Not done. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, remember they said that? Ah, oh, you're going to get our wives and our kids and all this. I will bring them into that land to enjoy the land that you rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in the wilderness, one by one. Your children will be shepherds here for, circle those words, it's true, 40 years. Suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lie in the wilderness. How did they suffer? Their moms and dads died in the wilderness. All of them. All of them. For 40 years, watch his formula, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land. Remember those 12 spies? They went into the land for 40 days and they brought back very different reports. And the punishment was, the, the, the consequence was, you will suffer one year, you will wander the wilderness one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land. You will suffer for your sins and know what is like what it is like, I, I cringe to read the end of verse 34. To know what it's like to have me against you. 
I want God against my enemies, not me. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which is banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land, what happened to the ten? It's told right here. They returned and gave this really rotten report and grumbled against God and, and Moses. These men who were responsible for spreading this awful news about the land, they were struck down then and there and died with a plague before the Lord. Unbelievable. Of these men, only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, lived. And with that, folks... 40-year wilderness wanderings began. Uh, you could call it, if you like, the biggest detour ever. They're on that 11-day trip, and at this moment God says, nope, we got a 40-year delay. Huge. Um, I want you to fast flip to Deuteronomy 30. Would you go from numbers? We're just going to jump real fast and I think you'll stay with me. And in chapter 30 we find all the moms and dads of the unbelieving generation are gone now. This is 40 years later. Deuteronomy 30 tells about the children, their children, the ones 20 and under, the sons and daughters of that faithless generation, they're now gathered on the eastern bank of the Jordan River here in Deuteronomy 30. And they're, they're, they're hearing a final address from their leader, Moses, who's not 80 anymore. He's 120. He's tired. You with me? And God has told him, you're about to come home. So... Here's the last address I have for you. I want us to slip into this scene and, and hear as Moses speaks. Would you, would you imagine that? Uh, almost with fresh ears, he's about to point out the core test that, all of th that, that, that their parents had failed and that they will face when they go into the land. You with me? So they're all standing here. They're no longer 20 and under. They're... They're 60 years old and under and have their little children there. All right, so you're, walk, you're, you're, you're picturing it with me. Now you're ready to take it in. This is Moses' final words to those gathered in the next generation um, <clears throat> here in Deuteronomy 30. Where are we? Okay. Now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult. I look east right now because it, it's, it's, it's this group of people, a couple of million of them. And behind my back is the promised land. I'm Moses, okay? And I'm talking to them, and this is the last message I've got. Now, what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend to heaven and get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who's going to swim across and get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you may obey it. What he's doing is he's calling attention to the lies, which are excuses. It's too hard to do. I didn't quite understand it, so I just kind of gave up on it. God's going, no. No, it's none of that. And then he draws attention to choices. We've said this already in this short uh, beginning of our series. He's going to present boldly two very different options that leads to very different outcomes. And he begins the first of those right here in verse 15. See, I said before you today, life, prosperity, and death and destruction. You see in those two, they are north and south pole. Okay? 
For I command to you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience with Him, and to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. You don't need me to interpret that. That's just plain speak. Follow God. Live for God. Desire God. Choose to obey God. And then you will live, he says, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But the South Pole is also equally true. If your heart turns away from me and you're not obedient, if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, by the way, 100% of what he's saying here is things we are capable of. They are. If you get drawn away from God, you're capable of not being drawn away from God. If you disobey God, you're capable of obeying God. See? That's how it goes. I declare to you today, if you turn away, if you are not obedient, if you are drawn away to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. Different options lead to very different outcomes. May I observe something that you're wondering, or maybe not wondering about, but you're seeing it right now too? Both of those type people were going into the promised land. He didn't say, okay, which one are you going to be? They all got to come in. And by a choice of life and choices of life, they got to show who they were. I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land if you, if you choose to disobey me and ignore me. You've chosen a very different outcome. God's clear desire, and I love how the chapter ends, is what he says in verse 19 and 20. This is not a God who stands there indifferently and goes, Hey, you're going to be um, a goat or a sheep. You know that passage in the New Testament when Jesus talks in Matthew 25 that on the final day there's going to, everybody, humanity be, will be separated between goats and sheep. Sheep are ones that want God, live for God, pursue God. Not perfect people, but they hunger and thirst for God. They want to obey Him. And goats don't. They don't want to do any of that. Yeah, God, nice. No, I, I keep your offer to yourself. This is not a God that's going, well, fine. You want to be a sheep or you want to be a goat? Fine. Goat soup. Um, no, verse 19 and 20 tell you the heart of God, and it comes out right here. This day I call the heavens and earth as witness against you, as a statement to all of you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Are you looking at the page right now? I hope you circle these words. Now, choose. He doesn't, he doesn't, that sentence is not done. He says, choose life. You see, you're hearing God's heart here? He could have just said, so choose. No. He says, choose life so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God and listen to His voice and hold fast to Him. That means obey Him. For the Lord is your life, and He will give you many years in the land that He swore to give to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I wish... Um, wish we had another hour. <laughs> but um, I'm going to read you five verses that start Judges. Chapter 2. Moses dies back there. Joshua takes over. And he leads the people as they move into the land. Twelve tribes into twelve allotments of land. We could go into all those details. But he too makes a speech at the end of his life. And it's 
From that speech, Debbie and I have put on the wall the entryway of our home, Joshua 24, verse 15, which repeats Moses' words, not surprising. He followed Moses, he listened to Moses, he sat at his feet and learned from Moses. But Joshua 24, Moses is long gone, he's in glory. But he sits, um, he sat at Moses' feet long enough to know that that's the way to frame this. And in chapter 24 of Joshua, he says, Choose this day whom you will serve, Joshua 24, verse 15. And then he says, without hesitation, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Can I tell you, uh, I'd like you to read Joshua 24, and I want you to read the response of the people to his question, to his prompting. Choose this day whom you will serve. Not once, not twice, but three times they answered. We will. We will serve him. You only have to turn to Judges 2 at the beginning of this new stretch of history. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, verse 6, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served, look at this, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Not done. Joshua then died and was buried. And incredibly, um, that generation made good on their choice. The kids of the faithless became faithful. So what I have to read you in these last two, three verses is somewhere between um, stupid and stubborn. And I wish it's, it's like hard to read verse 10. Remember that whole group? They said, okay, we'll follow you, and they did. But after that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Most of your Bibles say they died. They lived long lives, full lives. Another generation grew up who followed God just like them, who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites, verse 11, did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors. They followed all of these other foreign gods. And in God's anger, verse 14, against this new Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them, who sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord, ah, it's hard to read it, was against them to defeat them just as he had sworn to them. And this last sentence happens to everybody that makes the wrong choice. They were in great distress. I want to ask you to close your Bible right now, if you would this morning, and I'm going to ask you some very personal questions. We're going to, we're going to sing a response song that is really uh, very, very um, appropriate for this moment. But before we sing the song, um, I want you to think of your own story. And I want you to think of the options that you were given, and everybody is given by God. Choose me, choose to love me, choose to obey me, choose to live for me. And it will be a blessing to you and to your family. You will live a good life. Not a perfect life, not a pain-free life, but you will live a good life. Um, that's one of the choices that faces every one of us. What choice have you made? Is it that one or is it the one that leads you to those final words? They were in great distress. And if you're honest, you'll have to say it's a distress of my own making. 
When God says, I'm, I resist that, you're, you, I want God to lift me, not to resist me. And so do you. So, I think if Moses and I think if Joshua were to show up right now and grab a microphone, they would say to you, it's true. I think they would grab this moment and say, it's your choice. And they, they might even add, choose daily. It's not way back at a camp when you were a kid. Choose today. And then tomorrow morning, choose again. And choose well. Choose the right path. And, and, and they would say, what well, we know, choose Jesus. And remember, in your choice, the, the, the Israelites' choice at first was to follow God. Remember? Oh, we will. We will. And it turns out it wasn't how things ended. So, I give you my heart as a song I want sung right now. In a very tender kind of a way, in a devotional way. So I'm going to ask you to do something this morning. I'm going to ask you to evaluate your own life and your own choice. Not long ago, right now. And when you do, I want you to uh, not only sing it, but pray this song. Lord, I give you my life. I live for you alone. If that's not true right now, then make it a prayer that says, God, it hasn't been true. I want it to, starting right now, to become true again. Will you do that? So God, we thank you for being the one that made your bias known. I, I, you, you said choose life. And I pray that we would be people that not only choose it, but choose it again and again and again for your glory. If we're way off that path, if we've made We've chose options that were, don't make sense and they're not turning out well. I pray for the person in this room or watching from someplace else and joining right now that you would make this the, the game changer. The I've got to change it up. I've got to choose differently moment. And if that's you this morning, I pray that you would, you would talk about it with somebody. You would make a clear path forward, a different path that says, I've chosen Jesus. I've chosen life. I'm going to do it again tomorrow and the next day and every day. Let's respond to him now in this song as God speaks to your heart as he does mine.